From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, I'm incredibly excited for my conversation with journalist and best-selling author Mark Harris. I've been a giant fan of Mark since I read his first book, Pictures at Revolution. The entire book focuses on the Academy Awards race for Best Picture in 1967, which right away is a really interesting, weird idea for a book. But Mark realized that by focusing on that year's race, he could make a much larger point about how the youth revolution of the 60s was changing filmmaking forever. The race pitted the last remnants of the old guard Hollywood system with uncontroversial spectacles like Dr. Doolittle against the exciting insurgents storming into the business and helping to shift society like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. Mark chronicles the obsessive, brilliant personalities behind all the nominated films that year. Mike Nichols, Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, Dustin Hoffman, Norman Jewison, and so many others, and fashions them around this really gripping narrative. It was a brilliant premise for a book and even better executed. That's what Mark does so well. He sees patterns in what the rest of us just glance at and see nothing in. One critic said about Mark, it's hardly news that movies affect and are affected by the broader canvas of popular culture and world history. But Harris, perhaps more successfully than any other writer, past or present, manages to find in that symbiotic relationship the stuff of great stories. Mark brings the same brilliant eye to Twitter, of all places. He's a great follow on Twitter. He'll write a storm of tweets every time Trump does something bigoted and awful. But he'll also tweet storm with the exact same level of passion and outrage when the Oscars decides to change its format and give out a popular award uh, for movies. Here are a couple quick examples of recent tweets from Mark. Quote, one of the movies just announced for the New York Film Festival is 15 hours and 37 minutes long. I'm going to have to prepare my annual lecture on screening room hygiene early this year. And another about the outgoing EPA head. Quote, who will Trump nominate? to replace Scott Pruitt. A bucket of asbestos? Actual smog? Did I mention he's also really funny? And if that, all of that wasn't enough, the guy is married to one of America's greatest living playwrights and screenwriters, Tony Kushner. So here we go, very excited. Here's Mark Harris. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. You know, one thing I've learned uh, over the years of of writing about movies is that what kind of artist someone is. Um, Screenwriters, absolutely, but also uh, directors and even actors to some extent. Uh, does not really bear that much of a predictive relationship to how they are going to be able to talk about their own work. Hmm. Um, You know, there are people who uh, just almost have a, a, a physical aversion to switching into that analytical channel about themselves and what they produce it, it's it's sort of like to to examine it from that angle would be to 
uh, screw with their own process in a way that I think some people are almost superstitious about, hmm. um, and other people are are uh, fantastic about it. And and you right. know, of course, as as a film historian and as a journalist, uh, I, I cling to those people. They're 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 just great. I bet. So so I'm curious about that. So you know, in the in the intro, I was talking a little bit about that book of yours that I love so much, Pictures of the Revolution. Um, how much did you get to talk to people involved in the movies of 1976? Uh, um, uh, 67, sorry. Uh, 76 would be a good book, though. That but, would be. Uh, that was like Taxi Driver well, and Network, well, right? When, yeah, when I was doing that book um, and everyone was like, you know, do another one, pick another year. Um, and I briefly flirted with it. Um, 76 was a, would have been a fun year to look at. Yeah. Um, All the President's Men. Right, Rocky, Rocky right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so for 67, well, I started work on that book in 2004 or 2005. So already I was aware that the clock was ticking on a lot of these people, um, that uh, there, there was one guy who, who um, I, I remember this, I think it was on Twitter, but it may have been a review. Uh, it probably was a review. He sort of attributed the book to luck, and he said, you know, he was... Harris was lucky enough to um, get people after enough time had gone by so that they were interested in talking in a more clear-headed way than they were at the time, but early enough so that they weren't dead yet. Right. Sweet spot. There's some truth in that. Um, uh, uh, My goal for that book was to talk to everyone uh, who was even tangentially involved in those movies, who would talk to me. And uh, there was a real gap between movies like um, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, uh, in which a substantial number of the participants were still alive and well and lucid and willing to participate. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Dr. Doolittle, where the people who made them were um, largely older at the time, and there were, there were fewer of them around still right. to talk. Right, right. So did you end up getting to talk to Mike Nichols? Let's start with The Graduate. Mike Nichols and Dustin Hoffman? Yes. Um, uh, I talked to Mike Nichols. I talked to Dustin Hoffman. I talked to um, Buck Henry, who oh, was yeah. uh, enormously helpful, and um, also to uh, Larry Terman, the producer of the mm-hmm. movie. Um, so, so with The Graduate, you know, even though there was... Uh, you know, some of these movies had better archives than others, but with The Graduate, I was really able to piece together the story of it from the um, uh, the people involved. Uh, Anne Bancroft, unfortunately, had died, and um, I uh, wasn't able to get um, Catherine Ross to talk to me for huh. whatever reason. Yeah, she kind of disappeared. But everyone else um, who who had anything to do with the movie was, was willing to talk. And, and they were really, they were great interviews. They were right. very, you know, as you would think for a movie about kind of, uh, among other things like articulate neurosis, right. um, you know, pe- people were am- amazingly sharp and, and, and also very willing to tell stories uh, in which they were not the hero. Um, you know, with a movie like The Graduate, which is, is, a kind of widely acknowledged classic now. The danger in doing interviews is that everything becomes um, an after-dinner story. You know, Dustin Hoffman and Mike Nichols were not unused to being asked about The Graduate. Right. Um, so you worry that people are going to go into their kind of autopilot, like, 
oh, they want me to tell the story about how long it took, or they want me to tell the story about my audition. And and that always takes a little bit of kind of... It, it takes questioning through a side door in a way sometimes to get people to look at things that they've looked at over and over again from a new perspective but but everyone on that movie um especially mike and and dustin hoffman were were really great about approaching it fresh right i mean the way what you were saying before about um artists who aren't so good about talking about their work mike nichols is the polar opposite of that every time i've seen him speak about craft it's it's a masterclass yes absolutely uh you know and he's willing to entertain your theories and explore them and dismiss them and and but 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 he's not he's not uninterested i mean mike nichols was a huge movie fan for one thing i mean he he started off you know from the early part of his movie directing career even when he was directing uh, who's afraid of virginia wolf he was already talking publicly about how he felt about george stevens uh what an influence fellini was on him at that moment so so he he was always uh willing to give uh sort of public airing to that side of himself right and um buck henry who wrote the screenplay for the graduate uh you know i haven't heard many interviews with him is he you know, sort of everything. He's a, he's a funny guy, of course, but is he everything you want him to be in terms of talking about, you know, what the what was behind the movie's meaning and what he was trying to do with it and so forth? Yes. I mean, we spoke about 12 years ago, and since then I believe he's had some um, health struggles, mm-hmm. you know, as he approaches 90. Um, but um, he was, as you would imagine, very, very smart and and dry and funny and just everything you would want from a writer, which is he watched everything, he That's observed great. everything, he, he, he took it all in, um, and uh, was, again, really not interested in telling stories to uh, aggrandize himself or, frankly, anyone else. Right. You know? It must be very weird for these people, though. I mean, you know, Nichols and, and Hoffman, and to an extent, Henry obviously went on to, to do other fantastic things in their career. But it, it must be pretty grating to have people come up and talk to them about something that they did for literally, you know, six months, 50 years ago. You know, I, I think that's kind of uh, an occupational hazard of having a, a long-term movie right. career. I'm always struck by that story that um, Betty Davis did her role in All About Eve in 13 days. Is that right? And, and I mean, it's, it's sort of unimaginable that here we are almost 70 years later, right. you know, and there are people who have memorized every, every beat of that. Um, and for her, it was a couple of weeks' work on one of several projects she worked on around that time. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't think most people find it grating. I mean, if you're... If you're attitude is how dare you ask me about my only success probably what grates on you is that it was your only success right and i don't think anybody really felt that about um the graduate right and you know what i mean speaking of of 76 you know stallone famously wrote rocky and you know a four-day uh, you know, in a cabin in the woods over over a four-day period, and we're still talking about it this many years later. And that's true for so many actors and writers and directors, obviously. Um, but it's all the preparation 
that took them to that place that they were able to do that great work yeah. in a short amount of time. So I do think we sort of look back on it wrongly when we say, well, it was, it was only three days' work. So Absolutely. And if anything, I find that when, when, when the movie is of value and when the experience meant something to these people, the more they talk about it, um, the more it becomes like not history to them, but fresh news. I mean, Buck Henry um, shares screenplay credit with Calder Willingham for The Graduate, even though uh, pretty much by all accounts, although Willingham did an early draft, the the finished movie is is really Buck Henry. This was one of the earliest cases uh, in which a writer arbitrated, uh, you know, went to the Guild asking for credit and won. And when Buck Henry talked about it, it was clear that it still graded on him. That hmm. that you know, uh, almost forty years later, at the time, he was he was annoyed that that um, he had to share credit with with um, right. uh, a, a writer who he had, I don't think ever met. Um, so one thing I always try to be aware of when I'm working on these books is that history to you is their life to them, <laughs> and and you you can never be sure certain what's going to um, trigger a hurt feeling or, or you know, some people have things in a very calm perspective with the distance of decades. Others do not. And, and you have to kind of be willing to adjust whichever way it goes. Right. No, that's smart. Um, and what about a couple of the other movies that year? Bonnie and Clyde, did you get to speak to Warren Beatty? Yes. Bonnie and Clyde was probably, of the five movies in the book, the other one where the, the majority of people were uh, alive and able to talk. Uh, Robert Benton, uh, the co-screenwriter with David Newman, was in fact the first uh, person who was willing to talk to me for the book. Hmm. Um, and that first interview is always... I mean, first interview on a first book, you are really asking someone to um, take a leap of faith with you. And I will be lastingly grateful to Robert Benton for doing that. But, yes, I was able to talk to Benton, to Arthur Penn, who was great, to Warren Beatty, who was just fantastic, to Estelle Parsons. Um, The only only major person on uh, Bonnie and Clyde I could not talk to uh, was Faye Dunaway. She did not want to talk. Hmm. Um, and with those people, you know, you just have to, it's, it's your job to make sure that they're represented as fairly as possible and, that, and to make sure that you don't punish them for their unwillingness to participate. Because the truth is nobody owes you an interview. Right. Some people really want to talk about their work. Other people, for, for many reasons, uh, don't. And so, you know, I just tried to, if I couldn't get Faye Dunaway, I was going to ask everyone else about her and see anything that she might have said at the time that would be useful, or later about that time that would be useful, or right. or, or, or anything that anyone else said about her. So so it's it's, you just have to kind of try to fill in the painting as completely as possible uh, with, with the tools you have. And how did the idea for the book of, of writing a book based on the, um, the race for Best Picture that year, do you remember at all how that came about? A, a little bit. It came, it came about in a sort of backwards way, which is that I was looking for something uh, to write a book about that would hold my interest for 
the length of time I knew it would take to write it. Um, and I kept landing on the movies of the mid-1960s and on this central and, to me, fascinating question of how did we get from one kind of movie in 1963 to another kind of movie in 1968. I mean, the shorthand I used was, how did we get from The Sound of Music to Midnight Cowboy in just four years? But the the deeper thing that I felt I was going after was that that uh, five-year stretch of time from the early 60s to the late 60s seemed to me almost unprecedented before or since in how quickly movies changed in America. Right. And so I kept coming at it in different ways. I thought, is this going to be a series of essays or a survey, or should I just go month by month through a year and talk about the releases and what that was like? And I couldn't find anything to make it into a narrative, which I really wanted it to be. I didn't want to write something that would necessarily feel like a textbook. I wanted to write a story with characters, and that was holding me up. And then I just kind of stumbled upon this idea of the five movies. And the more I started to look into it, the the two things that really sold me on it were learning that The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde both had their origins as early as 1963 in terms of planning for a movie. Uh, Because then I started to realize, well, there's a lot I can drag behind these cars, you know? If I can really tell a story of the making of movies that goes from 63 all the way through the 68 Oscars, then I have a substantial period that I get to cover. And the other thing that convinced me it was a book was, weirdly, Dr. Doolittle, because I thought, even though this is not a movie that anyone pays attention to, the great thing for me about doing those five movies were I had four movies that in various ways and with different degrees of success and energy were trying to buck the existing system. But then I had a fifth movie that was the system. I wouldn't have to explain what the system was, what the thing that they were trying to thwart was. Right. I had a movie that I could tell that story through. Right. Um, and and so that really made me feel like, oh, if I can get the full story on these five movies, there's great characters, there's big personalities, there's a couple of the movies that have really endured and people still watch and talk about. I think maybe I'll have a book. That's really smart. Um, and I looked up uh, what else was nominated that year. And I think you got very lucky because I think you're right. You needed Dr. Doolittle to, to represent the old guard. But how the hell did that not get replaced with Cool Hand Luke? Right. Exactly. I mean, if, if, if a better, more deserving movie had gotten that slot, right. um, I, uh, no one would have ever heard of you. Big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, maybe if Camelot had gotten that spot, I, right. I almost could have gotten away with it, but nothing is as funny or horrifying as the stories of Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, if Cool Hand Luke, if Two for the Road, if In Cold Blood, oh. you know, at one point I, re- I really thought it was going to be about more than five movies, and I thought the In Cold Blood story would be great to tell. Yeah. But, um, and I Two for very... the Road is a great, uh, really subversive romantic comedy. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, it's, it's a big favorite of mine. Um, but I had a very smart editor. I've had the same 
editor on all of my books to my great good fortune and and he early in the process very gently said you're not writing an encyclopedia you know make right. sure you're telling your story right um but you also you know like i said i follow you on twitter you are a guy who likes the oscars you think about the oscars <laughs> a lot you talk about the oscars a lot what is it about about the oscars that you are so drawn to um i i find them fascinating i really do i don't um I, I certainly don't take them as any kind of gospel about what the best movies of a given year are. I don't think anyone who loves the Oscars really does that. Um, but, you know, it the, what the Oscars are is the industry taking a yearly snapshot of how it wants itself represented. It, it's It's like saying, this is what we think we're all about and that is such a moving target because not only does the stuff they honor change and sort of write a new chapter in the history of Hollywood from year to year but as we've seen in the last five years the definition of we has changed a lot Mm -hmm. so we're in this really interesting place now where uh, the, the we that gets to make these decisions has changed 25 or 30 percent in the last five years. And I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but I think that that uh, eventually in the next few years we're going to see a, a, a new definition of what the broadest parameters of a good movie, according to the Academy, can be. Um, and And I always find it interesting when Hollywood attempts to define itself. And there are very few ongoing markers by which Hollywood does that. I mean, box office is one. I suppose you could write some sort of history of Hollywood by looking at the top five grossing movies every year. Um, But the Oscars are an interesting, more formalized way uh, to do that. And, And... you know, you what they reward, what they ignore, what they miss completely, what they give a bigger and more public life to by honoring, um, those are all, I think, really interesting questions of an industry's self-definition. And, and I, don't, I don't think that means you shouldn't argue with them or that you should agree with all of their choices. Uh, you know, I think... I think there's, for instance, you know, we learn an enormous amount about, you know, how Hollywood is and isn't in sync with popular taste by looking at something like Crash and in 2005 and thinking, okay, why did Crash win? What was what was being said in that movie that uh, made Academy voters think, yes, this is, you know, this is the statement we want to make about ourselves. Um, when when do Oscar voters seem to vote in a way that uh, is designed to avoid saying anything? To, to right. when do they seem to shun social issue movies? When do they seem to embrace them? When do they seem to take a big um, leap toward artistry? I mean, I, I do try to remember that, like you know, Ingmar Bergman, Kurosawa, Fellini, Kubrick, Antonioni. Um, uh, David Lynch all got Best Director nominations. So, so you know, the argument that the Oscars never reward anything good with nominations is as silly as the argument that right. they, 
you know, represent the final word in taste. But right. but yeah, I find them very interesting to cover and and especially right now. Um and Crash is a really interesting example. If I'm remembering right, didn't it um beat out Brokeback Mountain? It did. Which it should have which I mean looking back, oh my god, Brokeback Mountain certainly should have won. And you know, a movie's reputation can be hurt for um decades by what's perceived as an unjust win. I mean, it took a really long time for anybody to look at How Green Was My Valley as anything but the movie that beat Citizen Kane, hmm. you know. Uh, and yes, I think um, uh, Brokeback Mountain should have won, too. Uh, I mean, my husband wrote one of the movies that was nominated that year, and I still think Brokeback Mountain should have won. It would have been the right choice for 2005. Um, but Crash but, was a much easier to swallow uh, movie about diversity. Right. And then you have to start thinking, okay, but why? Why did that happen? And you think, well, it's set in Los Angeles. A lot of it is set in cars. Who was the votership? Right. What is the experience of the average, you know, predominantly older, predominantly white, predominantly male Oscar voter in 2005 that made them think, yes, you know, how I fail to talk to my, you know, gardener is the real story of race in America. <laughs> right. Um, you know, right. It, it, so, so if you... If you're willing to sort of tease out every thread, and, and paradoxically, like, if you're willing to make more of the Oscars than you probably should, they can show you a lot. Right. But, um, I mean, I assume, you know, we certainly don't need to have the debate about which is um, better quality writing right now, TV or movies. I think it's, I, I would imagine you would agree with me that it's TV, but I, I don't think, you're not tweeting much about the Emmys. Um, yeah, I think which is better quality writing is actually a... Uh, complicated debate and i i don't know if i don't know if i would pick one because i think they're there's such different forms right now long form tv and movies in some ways a really great two-hour script requires a kind of discipline that serialized storytelling does not so i would say that rather than choose one the the best of both is very impressive mm-hmm. um there's a lot of bad tv no Believe question. Me, I live in front of it. Yeah. Uh, no but, question. But I, I don't know. To me, certainly the um, percentage-wise, uh, the great there's there's so much great TV, and part of that is because there's so many hours of the shows that are so great. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Although now you watch, you know, uh, uh, an open-ended story, and a lot of times, you know, I think. Uh, I mean, people have referred to Netflix bloat, and I really understand that. Like, there there are plenty of shows I've seen that are 13 episodes where I think you could have done this in seven sure. and really lost nothing. Sure. But on the other hand, it's thrilling to see a really good long story unfold over hours and hours and years and years. Right. I don't write about the Emmys much because um, they're not... They're not um, meaningful in the same way that Oscars are meaningful. I mean, I root for the shows I like. I get happy when they recognize something new. The Emmys certainly were way ahead of the Oscars in terms of uh, diversity. And I think even in the Emmys that were given over this weekend, all like 95 of them, Mm -hmm. you can see a lot of that. Uh, I mean, it is meaningful that, for instance, this year, um, the four winners for series guest actors are all African-American. It's meaningful that RuPaul's Drag Race and Queer Eye finally broke through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the the Emmys are voted on by a lot of people, too many people probably, and I say that as an Emmy voter, 
who don't watch the shows, right. who are very likely to check off something that's won before because that's just the show they like and they don't really realize that they didn't like it as much this season as they did before. So um, it's not this crystal clear snapshot uh, of a particular sensibility the way um, the Oscars are. And we also don't know as much about who the Emmy votership is uh, as we do about the Oscar votership. There There hasn't been the same kind of diversity discussion. So right. I just, you know, I mean, Emmys are great and they're really fun, but um, the Oscars are a kind of year-by-year history of the mainstream Hollywood movie business. And, right. and I don't think the Emmys are quite that in terms of television. Um, well, going back to movies for a second, um, can you tell us a little bit about how Five Came Back came about? Uh, sure. I, I um, was looking for a second book to do, and I I had a really strong instinct that I should not try to repeat what I had done in Pictures of a Revolution. And so I started, instead of looking at the 1960s, which was a movie period I'd always had an immense fondness for, um, I started looking at World War II, which was a movie period that I had always avoided and had only become recently conscious of having avoided. My father was a World War II veteran. I didn't listen to his World War II stories. I could never understand what was going on in battle movies. I'm not a war buff. Um, I I don't respond terribly well to a ton of violence in movies. Uh, it always They always seemed sort of corny and about this kind of square-jawed version of heroism that I didn't really relate to. And and I thought, I, I, I need to understand a little bit more um, why I'm shrinking from this. And as I started looking at directors I really loved, like William Wyler and George Stevens, uh, I started realizing that I was treating that, what I call the IMDB gap, the you know, the place between Mrs. Miniver in 1942 and and the best years of our lives in 1946 as just like a pause in their careers without being interested in what happened there. And once I, once I kind of fell in love with the idea about learning about that, it, it really changed my understanding of all of these directors, of the movies they made during the war, of the movies they made after the war. And, uh, of course, by the time I boiled it, down in, from this, you know, 2,500-page book I had in my head about 13 different people, um, it had become, like my first book, another story of five things, you know, five, right. uh, five men this time, not five movies, but, but following them through uh, this eight-year period. And um, I ended up absolutely loving doing the book and, and doing the work for the book, and, and it really... Um, it it filled in a huge blank for me that changed my understanding of of th- those directors and of American movies and and really you know taught me about 
this aspect of uh, the war in a way that I'd never considered before. It's so great. And and also, I think it's it's just so great for the audience. I mean, you know, my students here at Yale, they don't know any movie pre-1990, you know. Um, so to get them excited about seeing some of those movies from the 40s, which obviously, you know, your book did, but also the Netflix adaptation of your book did, which yes. that's got to be the greatest lineup of talent ever. I mean, <laughs> so in your in the, in the Netflix adaptation, you had Coppola, Del Toro, Spielberg, Greengrass, Lawrence Kasten, and Meryl Streep narrating. Right. I mean, that was that was just a, a, a thrill beyond belief. And and I mean, I always thought that. Uh, that Five Came Back would be more adaptable as a documentary than Pictures of a Re- Revolution would, because um, with these war movies, you really want to see what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I tried to write about them as, as lucidly and fully as I could, but it, you know, we even talked about when we were doing the book, you know, can we afford to put a DVD in the back, or would that um, raise the price to $50? And, you know... Uh, so Netflix turned out to be the perfect venue for it because they uh, took all of the public domain war movies that uh, that I had written about in the book and, and put them up on, on uh, their service so that people could, you know, go from the documentary to the movies themselves. Most That's great. Very short. Um, but to have that lineup of directors talking about directors, which I have to say was the the big brainchild of our director, Laurent Buzero. He was the one who really felt that um, this would be one of many good ways to tell the story, uh, and he was absolutely right about that. It was it was to have to have directors talking about other directors from you know seventy years, eighty years ago. Uh, really, I think helped bring the work of the older directors into a kind of contemporary context that I hope made people uh, more curious to see them. I mean, Yeah. And I mean, it was even more interesting than that. I thought that you had each of these modern day directors paired up with one of the, you know, 1940s directors who uh, certainly I wouldn't necessarily realize is a direct connection. What Spiel, It was Spielberg talking about William Wyler? Uh, Spielberg was talking about William Wyler. Um, uh, the, my, uh, you know, uh, John Huston talked about uh, uh, Coppola, or Coppola talked about John Huston, right. uh, which was felt like kind of a natural to me. The one that I don't think uh, any of us saw coming was Guillermo del Toro talking about Frank Capra. Right. Um, and, and you know, we didn't we didn't go to these guys for the most part and say, could you please talk about director. X. We went to the people we really wanted to go to and um, uh, said, you know, does this does this material resonate for you at all? And and you know, we were thrilled that Paul Greengrass wanted to do uh, John Ford, and we were thrilled and shocked that Del Toro wanted to do Frank Capra. Uh, But it it turns out that if you if you let them go where they want to go, they're going to go to really interesting places. Right. Yeah. Completely. Um, so your new book that I think you're working on now is, uh, about Mike Nichols, right? Um, so, I mean, that seems like pretty much the fucking dream gig, right? You just get to (laughs) sit around watching old Mike Nichols movies over and over again and reading his old interviews and talking to people who knew him is, is that as, is it as good as it sounds? Uh, well, it's, it's as good as it sounds slash really hard. I mean, it's, it is 
an Everest of a career. I mean, it's it's yeah. even after you get past him as a performer, which is a really substantial right. chapter in the history of you know improv comedy. Um, you have. 50 years of movies, and simultaneously 50 years of theater, which is a, a story that I really, you know, want to tell and, and give full space to. I mean, you know, Mike Nichols is the man who brought the odd couple to Broadway. Um, and Barefoot so, in the Park, too. And Barefoot in the Park, uh, and was a really important um, stage director. Uh, so, so yes, it's, it's, it's a huge task, and I was always worried about doing a biography because I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not Robert Caro. I don't, I don't know that I can wake up every day for years and years thinking about the same person. Maybe I'll go out of my mind. <laughs> right. And you're uh, not going to sleep in the same hotel room with the same sheets that he slept in in 1976, like Caro would do with LBJ. Right. Exactly. I like, I'm not, I'm not quite that obsessive. Um, but, um, it, when I, I mean, I knew Mike for the last I guess, uh, probably 10 or 12 years of his life, um, both because of Angels in America and because of my first book. Mm. Um, so I, and I had always urged him to write his own autobiography, which he didn't want to do. I, I just, I knew enough about his career, I think, to have the strong instinct that there were not any boring parts, <laughs> um, that, that it was all going to be interesting to research. And I thought, you know, to, to write about Mike means to write about Broadway in the 1960s, Chicago in the 1950s, Hollywood in the 1970s, Berlin. I mean, you're, you're dragging a lot along in one life. And it felt to me like a, a piece of um, biography that could also be a piece of history. And also, right. honestly, after my first two books, I thought it appeals to me that this is something I have not remotely done before. This is not going to be five interconnected, interwoven plot lines. This is one life. It's not going to take place over five years. It's going to take place over 83 years. Right. And, and so that excited me too. Well, I was going to say, I mean, right. So, so the frameworks of your first two books are so interesting. Um, I was going to say, I would be surprised if you were going to do a cradle to the grave approach with Nichols, but um, maybe there's no other way to do it. I mean, ask me, ask me in a year, okay. uh, but, but I, I, I have always thought that um, uh, a, a cradle to the grave approach is for this subject the right one. I don't. I have a very strong instinct not to do anything fancy with structure because um, one of the things I'm trying to do is make the ongoing creative life of a director make sense to me and thus make sense to you. You know, how do you make the choices that end up defining your career for 50 years? How do you react to a failure? How do you react to a success? Um, what do you do when you are depressed and you don't feel like working? What do you do when you sort of lose your pitch, when you're on a cold streak? Um, it seems to me that the way to tell that story is in order because you. I don't want you to get to Mike Nichols in his 60s without understanding how he got there. Right. Um, so at the risk of being boring, I'm going to tell you the story from the beginning, and I am going to try to tell it without the um, 75 pages that uh, 
people always um, skip in a biography because they want to get to the good stuff. Right. Because I think the good stuff uh, can be right there from the beginning. Right. Um, I assume this changes a lot for you, but as you're rewatching them, but are there a couple of his movies right now? What What are your current sort of favorite of his movies right now? <laughs> um, I don't know if I have. Uh, this is weird. This is the first time I've talked about this. Is that um, right? I, I, I feel in some ways I should not talk about it. Interesting. Because, because uh, you know, I, I haven't, I, I don't feel I've earned the right to talk about this book until it's written. Totally fair. But, um, so I won't, I won't pick favorites, but I, I will say it's, you know, one movie I watched that was a lot deeper and more complicated and, and, had more going on in it than I had remembered was Heartburn. Oh, um, I love Heartburn. And and no that, that's when I'm really uh I am more excited to write about it than I realized that I would be. Yes. Um good. But uh I should also say that like it's really fun for me to watch a movie that doesn't work, like Day of the Dolphin. You you know, I want to watch it. How do I watch it? You can't get it. <laughs> you can't. I, I, I have um, I, I have a Day of the Dolphin DVD. I'll, oh, I'll let it yeah, to you. Yeah, seriously, it's please. Totally worth, a, totally worth a look. And, and you know, I think failures are incredibly illuminating. I felt that on the first book. I felt that on the second book. I absolutely feel it. Um hmm on this one they 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 tell you a lot why a movie doesn't work when a movie doesn't work because then you have to ask like well why did you do it in the first place what did you possibly see in this what did you hope it was going to right. be what made it not be the thing you hoped it was going to be and and getting those answers um sheds i think at least as much light on the creative process as you know how did you make this masterpiece right all right well then i really look forward to your chapter on uh the gary shanling movie he made <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I I can't wait to read this, and I'm so excited. You know, Carnal Knowledge is one of my favorite movies of all time. Closer, I think, is extraordinary. Oh, Working yeah. Girl, there are just so many. That's um, gonna be fun. Um, but one thing you and I talked about um, in terms of, you know, I, I went to see him speak near the end of his life. He um, they took over a Broadway theater, and he just spoke, um, you know, in sort of an interview format for an hour, hour and a half, and it was. was Jack O'Brien. Yes. Yeah. So this exactly. was one of the one of the two documentaries that ended up being made about it. Right. That's right. I remember that they said that they were filming two nights in a row and they were going to mash them together for the documentary. Um, and Nichols was just so incredibly smart about about craft and about writing. Um, and and by the way, I want to ask. So you know, he's worked obviously with some of the great screenwriters of all time. Did you get to talk? to Nora Ephron before she died? Did you get to talk to Aaron Sorkin about Charlie Wilson's War? Did you get to talk to some of the great writers he's worked with? Um, I, Nora Ephron died uh, before okay. I, long before I was on this project, uh, which I did not, she died before Mike, um, which, which I, and I didn't start this until uh, after, mm-hmm. after Mike had died. I, I knew Nora Ephron and I was certainly lucky enough to uh, talk to her about some of these things along the way informally. Um, and everyone else, you know, I'm I'm in the middle of um, I'm in the middle of interviewing now, so I shouldn't say okay, too great. much about who I've talked to and who I haven't. Fair only enough. that I'm I'm you know I always say I'm hoping to talk to everyone. Uh, in the case of the Mike Nichols book, that's impossible. Right. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, but I am already thrilled with 
who I've talked to without giving away any secrets, and I'm excited to talk to many more people. And so, uh, you know, at this night where I I saw him speak, he talked a lot about how he talks to his writers about um, his feeling that every single scene should be either a seduction, a negotiation, or a fight. Right. And I talk about this all the time with my students because I think it's just such a smart way of thinking um, about the sort of basic building block of, uh, you know, a, a TV uh, script or a screenplay, if your scene is not a seduction or a negotiation or a fight, you need to cut it because it's just filler or it's right. exposition. It's a little related to this uh, playwright's rule that um, a scene should begin at the last possible moment and end at the first possible moment. Mm-hmm. Like the second, uh, you know, Tony always says this, uh, the second somebody is on stage who doesn't want something, it's over. Right. Um, and right. I think, you know, seduction, negotiation, fight is, is was Mike's uh, version of that. It's a great one. And I think, by the way, I should say that it partly comes from uh, his work with Elaine May. It even predates his work as a director because he, he often said that when he and Elaine were on stage together uh, improvising something, uh, she would say, when in doubt, seduce. Hmm. Um, so, so I think he understood that seduction was as powerful a, a motivator in a scene as fighting or negotiation. Right, right. And you look back at so many of his great um, uh, works, from you know the real thing on Broadway to to Working Girl or Closer. I mean, seduction might be the, the sort of the dominant of those three right. um, in his work. Um, so I asked you if you wanted to, um, if there was a scene by someone, uh, someone else's work, um, that you were interested in talking about from a craft perspective, uh, in light of this idea of seduction, negotiation, fight, and you picked a scene from Double Indemnity. Um, so this is written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, and it was released in 1944. Um, Fred McMurray plays an insurance salesman who falls for this mysterious woman, played by Barbara Stanwyck, who seduces him into a plot to kill her husband. Um, they want to collect the insurance money that way. And it, it was remade many years later uh, in the 80s by Lawrence Kasten into Body Heat, which is one of my favorite thrillers. Yep. Um, but let's play the scene from Double Indemnity. Uh, it's from early in the movie where McMurray has come to Stanwyck's house to sell her insurance. Right. I think this is their first meeting. It's their first meeting. Um, okay, great. And then we'll talk about it. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? Oh, it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Tell us. Tell us, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. Well, I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. 
Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. Oh, that's a great scene. It's so good. Uh, so why'd you pick that one? Well, I mean, I, I had to pick something that represented uh, great screenwriting. You know, you can't even say that that's screenwriting 101. It's it's like screenwriting 404. Yeah. You know, you, you, you it's. I loved it because we were talking about seduction negotiation fight, mm-hmm. and that's obviously a seduction and a negotiation. Yeah. But um, and a bit of a fight. <laughs> and a bit of a fight, and it's also like. One of the great things about that scene is that they're both performing, and they know they're performing. Right. I mean, they're speaking like in totally in metaphor, which most of us don't do in life. Right. Um, but it's they they know that they can they can have this this you know tense, almost hostile mating dance if they don't say what is going on explicitly, and they. I mean, it just it, it just felt it's so witty. It's so it adroit. I and mean, they're you showing off for so each other. So much about both of them. They're, yes, they're both peacocking. Yeah. Um. And and she sort of wins, and then you know he has that beautiful exit line. I wonder if you wonder. Yeah. Um. So you really you get so much information about how tough both of them are, about how they are dangerous in different ways, and um. And about how they're, how they negotiate to get what they want. I think it's right. uh, it, it's just really exciting. And also, I think you know we there are, and for some good reasons, there's an enormous premium placed on naturalism, uh, on being able to capture uh, the sound of human speech and dialogue the way it really is. And that is one mode of screenwriting or playwriting or TV writing, and it's terrific. But there's a lot to be said for a certain kind of artificiality if you can pull it off as brilliantly as right. Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder did. Right. And, and, you know, that that too, like that kind of heightened language is something that is an incredibly useful tool to be able to have in your arsenal. And, you know, anybody who sees a movie... And, and says, like, oh, but people don't talk like that. It's like, fine, go out to the candy counter and you'll hear how people talk. Exactly, but, right. You'll be bored out of your mind right. listening to how people actually talk. Um, but, you know, it, uh, like you said, I, I agree with you that this is sort of a master class. This is just two people in a living room, um, you know, with there are no props in this scene. This is entirely conversational. And it's two people completely sizing each other up and seducing each other and seeing how far they can go without going too far. So there's an element of uh, fear. You know, are they going right. to go too far? Is she going to call the cops? Is she going to slap them? Um, he's sort of smiling the whole time, but you can tell he's, you know, he's he's nervous to, to push the limits. Um, and it's uh, because it's so early in the movie, it's a great sort of foreshadowing of the dance that they're going to be uh, doing for the rest of the movie. Right. I mean, what you're told in that scene in a very sophisticated way is this is an even match. Right. And that is really useful as something that's going to propel you into the rest of the movie. Right. 
Um, okay, well, uh, you've been with us. Uh, you've really given us a lot of time, which is so nice. Before I let you go, um, I'm always curious about um, my favorite writers' habits, their work habits. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just it, really helpful for other writers to hear. Before uh, I ask you, I want to read a tweet that you wrote this summer that I found. You wrote... Um, Today's stages of writing. One, eat some nuts. Two, read paper. Three, wonder about weird bump on my shoulder. Four, Google weird bump shoulder. Five, eat more nuts. Six, nap. Seven, clean desk. Eight, make very specific list of work I intend to do today. Nine, tweet. Ten, go buy nuts. Um, okay. <laughs> so is that a pretty accurate summation of a day or what? First of all, I will be immediately deleting my Twitter. <laughs> um, No, I mean, work gets done. And, and, you know, uh, a lot of people ask me, you know, they say, oh, I read your tweets and you uh, tweet all the time. How do you get any work done? A lot of the tweets that people have been reading for the last three years have been while I've been sitting in the (laughs) Lincoln Center Library for the Performing Arts waiting for a file to be brought up from, from, you know, the stack. Right. Um, Tweeting is like a cigarette break, but shorter. Um, I am not someone who has brilliant work habits that I can share with people. I live in awe of writers who get up and work from 8 a.m. to, you know, noon and then make themselves a polite little sandwich and 45 minutes later resume. I'm not like that. I I can say that I'm, I do better work in the second half of the day than in the first, hmm. which is not the case for most writers. Yeah, I'm the I opposite. Know. Um, I, you know, my feeling is, People work the way they work. Every writer knows that when you're not writing, a lot gets done. And every writer knows that negotiating that uh, that feeling of like, when am I avoiding something versus when am I filling my head with what I need in order to get back to work, you know, it's a really tricky thing. A lot of good writing gets done in the shower. Right. Um, a lot of good thinking gets done on a long walk. But you also know when you're when you're taking that walk toward writing and when you're taking that walk running away from it. Um, my rule, the only one I really do try to stick to, is work every day. Um, if you if you can only manage a half hour before it scares the daylights out of you and you have to run from it, okay. But do that half hour, mm-hmm. and the next day try to make it forty five minutes. Um, and no, you don't give yourself. Um you know, how many pages to come up with per day or any sort of goalpost. You just, it's putting your butt in the chair and sitting there for half an hour. Yeah, I mean, when I'm when I'm writing a book, uh, I, I don't have a, a word goal, but I usually know the day before the, the thing that I'm going to be working on the next day. I think that is very helpful. It's and, very helpful. And I know that, you know, uh, on a... On a great day, I can produce 2,500 words of a book, and on a not great day, I can produce about 700, and as long as it lasts, as long as it ends up somewhere in between there, right. and that there's, there's a share of good days as well as bad days, I'll, I'll be okay. You know, the important thing is to really, to keep going, to right. not get so thwarted or freaked out uh, that, that you just stop dead. And if you do stop dead, it's, it's really important to look at why? Try to figure out what's keeping you away, what's scaring you, because I think fear or anxiety is a big component of these things. Oh, yeah. And, and then just, like, forgive yourself and, and uh, try to get back to it. Right. Forgive yourself. 
Yeah, I yeah, like absolutely forgive yourself. I mean, that beating yourself up for what you didn't do is time wasted. Spend that time right. figuring out why you didn't do it and how you're going to do better. Actually, work habit-wise, is it tricky to have two writers in the family? Do you guys do you guys both leave the house to write? It's honestly great. Um, we 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 worked in the same small office for the first few years of our marriage. That was not great. Yeah, that sounds um, tough. I, I don't think anybody who is trying to write likes to hear anyone else typing. Right. Um, and and you know, so I think it's we're just really fortunate in that we're both writers, but we're not the same kind of writer. So we. We have different struggles, uh, but we both understand what it's like to struggle as as a writer, and and so I, I think we're appropriately sympathetic to to that, and give each other a lot of latitude to you know, I mean Tony's a, a, a very very useful. I read him uh, my books as as I go because he's a really excellent listener, and uh, when he doesn't understand something, um, that's a, a really good barometer for me that, that I've, I've failed. Right. So. That makes sense. Right. Um, all right, Mark, listen, thank you so much. This has been, uh, this has been really great. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks Appreciate so much for uh, doing this. Um, all right. Well, very, uh, I'm very excited to, uh, when, when is the Mike Nichols book coming out? Uh, 2020. That is too long for now. Uh, well, if you want to write it, be my <laughs> guest. But <laughs> all right, we will patiently uh, be waiting for it. Um, <laughs> thanks again. Talk to you very soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Bye. So long. And that's Mark Harris. Um, Again, go follow him on Twitter. He's just incredibly funny, incredibly smart. Um, Any given controversy or issue that comes up, and it seems like we're living in a world where a new controversy comes up every day, he's right there with you, um, basically giving a smarter take than you could have come up with on your own. Uh, So it's it's just one of the best parts of my day uh, to open Twitter and and read whatever he's uh, had to say that day. Um, thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy, or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you guys next week. <laughs>